From Troy Public Radio and Troy University in partnership with the Alabama World Affairs Council, this is Speaking Globally, and I'm Walter Gervan. Welcome back to Speaking Globally, where we look at the history, politics, and culture of different regions and countries around the world and talk with people who can provide context and insight into some of the most important global issues we face. In this episode, we check back in on the situation in Ukraine. In our last episode, we talked about the historic origins of conflict between Ukraine and Russia and the possible courses of action Russia might take to include an invasion. Now, three months later, a large-scale invasion of Ukraine has unfortunately happened, with the inevitable death and devastation that accompanies war. The street is littered with bullet casings, torn camouflage jackets, and craters from artillery rounds. In places there's so much ash on the ground, it actually feels like you're walking on black sand. Earlier this month, NPR's Nathan Rott visited the Ukrainian town of Buka, where satellite images had shown multiple bodies and graves that appeared while Russians were in control. Our translator, Luca, points to a burnt fire extinguisher as we walk through the rubble, making our way to the back of what's left of Abramov's house. He says Russian troops threw a grenade in his window the first night they came and yelled to come out of the house. They said, hands, show your hands. As the conflict continues, it's important that we take time to assess the impact this conflict is having on Ukraine, the effectiveness of military operations on both sides, and the impact of the sanctions the U.S. and Western nations have imposed on Russia. These and related topics will be the subject of our conversation today. Once again, my guest to provide expert insight on the conflict is Dr. Ralph Klim, an emeritus professor and senior fellow at the Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs at Florida International University. Dr. Klim holds the MA and PhD from Columbia University in Geography with a concentration in Soviet Studies. A geographer, he is the co-editor of seven books, including, most recently, Political Geographies of the Post-Soviet Union. And the chapters and articles he has published are numerous, with extensive coverage of Eastern Europe. Dr. Clem is also a retired Air Force Reserve Major General with many decorations, including the Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, Defense Superior Service Medal, and the Legion of Merit. This conversation with Ralph Clem was taped on March 31, 2022. Dr. Clem, it's great to have you back on Speaking Globally. Uh, thank you for joining us to update the situation in Ukraine. Well, first of all, I'm happy to be back. Thanks, as always, for the invite. Dr. Clem, we previously talked uh, just prior to the invasion. Uh, gosh, so much has happened uh, since then. The Russian invasion in late February, following that as it uh, unfolded, and here we are over a, a month down the road, and uh, things are still very much uh, in play. There, there hasn't been a resolution one way or the other. 
Let's pick up and uh, if you could give us a little bit of your thoughts about what has happened since the evasion, and, and let's focus a little bit on the military situation first and where we are now. Okay. I think that everybody agrees just right off the top that everybody that I know of and whose opinion I value believes that from a military perspective, this first, maybe into the second phase of the Russian invasion, this Russian invasion, remember they started to invade back in 2014 and took some territory then, but this obviously is a much, much larger military operation than what happened in 2014, 2015. So that being said, again, I think that most of the people who are expert on this uh, believe that, so far at least, again, uh, the Russian invasion has just been gone nightmarishly wrong for them and unexpectedly much better for the Ukrainian side. And clearly, the Russian advances on the ground have been halted uh, all along the perimeter all along the front that stretches several hundred miles from the Belarus border down through the Russian border down towards the the Black Sea region. Uh, The Russians have have not only not made much progress in the last two to three weeks, they've actually lost ground. The Ukrainians have taken back uh, significant ground, pushed the Russians back in the direction of the Belarus and Russian borders. Uh, That's not to overstate the point. Uh, because clearly there's a lot more that needs to be done militarily to get the Russians completely halted and back off of Ukrainian territory. There's been a lot of talk recently about the fact that the Russians are not so much withdrawing but realigning their forces from the areas in the northeastern part of Ukraine around the capital city of Kiev and uh, all the way along the frontier down to around the big industrial city of Kharkiv. And they're moving their forces further east. Ultimately, apparently, their objective is to secure additional territories in eastern Ukraine, which they think they'll be able to do, while basically just holding ground or even losing ground uh, along the other areas of the front. This is an indication that, again, from the Russian side, although not publicly, of course, that the big effort, the big push uh, to try to capture the capital city and dismantle the Ukrainian government, that obviously has failed in a spectacular way. So they're regrouping now. They've obviously got another strategic axis that they want to pursue. And that story is unfolding as we speak. It is unfolding. And as a former fighter pilot whose job was air superiority uh, in the F-15. It's been fascinating to watch this operation because, you know, the way we've traditionally done things is uh, uh, immediately establish air superiority, even air supremacy, if we can get it in terms of uh, Western and U.S. forces, and then ensure that freedom of action on the ground for the ground forces. It seems that Russia was never able to really establish air superiority and has, in fact, lost many aircraft as a result of that. And, of course, some of the weapons that are being pushed in uh, include uh, prominent among them are uh, the man pads, the shoulder-fired surface-to-air missiles uh, to help uh, uh, counter uh, the Russian aircraft. So uh, has that surprised you? It has. I think it surprised everybody which raises the point, which we can talk about later, uh, 
in a general military context, both ground forces and air forces, that it certainly seems now, with the benefit of about a month's worth of fighting to look back on, that most Western military experts had grossly overestimated the capabilities of the Russian armed forces, including their Air Force. I'm an old Air Force guy, too. And uh, I understand the way in which the United States Air Force and maybe the Navy uh, as well, how they operate. Uh, You and I have both been through the big military exercises like Red Flag, where the training is intense and complex military situations, uh, air-to-air, air-to-ground combat scenarios are worked out and practiced and lessons are learned from that. The Russians don't do that. And I don't think we really appreciated that sufficiently, that the the, first of all, the level of pilot proficiency and the kind of training they get is obviously way below par. They wouldn't stand for more than a matter of days against the U.S. and NATO air forces now that we actually have seen them, seen the Russian air forces in action. Uh, I also have a lot of concerns about what their maintenance is like how many aircraft uh, sorties, as we say in the business, they can generate. I suspect it's not, again, nearly what kind of a readiness rate that we would expect from our Air Force units. And and we need to go back and look at that. Again, within the larger context of how how did we misjudge this? Uh, Did we pay too much attention to the bright, shiny things like what airplanes they're turning out and their uh, next generation weapon systems when, in fact, they don't know how to employ them. The Ukrainians figured out early, as, as again, as you suggested, the Ukrainians do have a fairly capable surface-to-air missile capability. They have employed that brilliantly and, uh, again, as you noted, have shot down dozens of Russian aircraft and even more Russian helicopters by using what they've got, using it very, very cleverly and expertly. Uh, So essentially, the Russians are limited to flying very short-range attacks against the targets that they can easily identify and not using nearly as many of the sophisticated precision-guided munitions as we would have thought. So, yeah, that's something we need to come back and take a look at down the road once we have a chance to do the forensics on that. I have to bring this local as we kind of wrap up looking at the military situation. Lockheed Martin's uh, missile facility is just uh, here on the north side of Troy, and I've been very impressed with the Javelin missile uh, that has been used by the Ukrainians uh, that is a a U.S. missile that is especially effective uh, against armor, and it looks like the Russians have presented uh, a lot of uh, uh, very uh, attractive targets in terms of their armor without necessarily having the the infantry to to clear the way or using the infantry to clear the way, and so they've been subject to these kind of attacks. Any, Any thoughts about that? Well, that's very well, very well put, and that's exactly right, that the Ukrainian armed forces have received and are continuing to receive a number of different infantry portable missiles that can be and are being directed against tanks and other armored vehicles. Again, the Russians have planned this poorly. They invaded at a time when the only usable surfaces on which to travel are roads 
it's mud season in in Ukraine. The terrain, other than established roadways, is impassable. So they are confined to moving down very well-defined routes of approach. The Ukrainians have understood this. They played it perfectly. They send out small squads. They hunker down and they wait for the Russian army to show up and then they launch these missiles. And and you're right. uh, The basic tactic of uh, deploying infantry to accompany armor, Russians aren't doing that. Again, they've shown extremely poor tactics and operational procedures from the small units up to the, you know, the major uh, army level units. And they paid the price. And but I, I think that it's important to understand, first of all, what this tells us about future warfare. Is, is this the end of the tank age? Number one, and I don't know the answer to that, but uh, that's, you know, an Im- important point. And the second important point is the Ukrainians know how to fight. I don't think it was understood that from 2014 on, the U.S. and some NATO allies, especially Canada, have been training Ukrainian soldiers, you know, from a, up to a U.S. and NATO standard. So Ukrainian infantry units, for example, are trained to NATO standards, and they're equipped, as we've just discussed, with the most modern precision-guided attack weapons, and they've got eight years of combat experience under their belt fighting that lower intensity warfare in eastern Ukraine that began back in 2014. So the Ukrainian army is battle-hardened, exceptionally well-trained, and exceptionally well-equipped now to blunt this big Russian offensive. And then again, the Russians have helped out by making, again, a lot of these tactical errors. Let's move uh, now from the military situation to the international context uh, that this has unfolded in. We've already sort of referred to strategic miscalculations on the Russians' part in launching this war. And as we all know, wars are very easy to start. They're very hard to end. But one of the areas that it it seems perhaps that the Russians have misjudged is in the international reaction to the invasion. And uh, it has been strong, uh, hasn't it? It has been. And clearly, they misjudged that end. And it may be the case that we misjudged it. You know, going into this uh, back in the buildup when we talked prior in that January, February time frame, who really knew that the NATO allies and even non-NATO countries were going to step up in the manner in which they have? I'd, I'd like to think that there's some solid U.S. leadership behind that. In getting them all together, it's kind of like herding cats with so many countries with different and competing interests in things that who would have foreseen, for example, that the neutral countries like Sweden and Finland are now, according to public opinion polls, very interested in joining NATO themselves. So the fact that the NATO countries and other European allies or partners came together in this fashion militarily is very important, but more importantly is the fact that they've been able to put in place a number of sanctions within this broad sanctions regime that the U.S. and NATO are pursuing in in a way that, frankly, again, has surprised many people. Just yesterday, it was announced that Poland, which up to this point has been to some extent dependent on Russian 
natural gas for energy, Poland says they're just going to just wean themselves off of that right away. It's very difficult for these countries to step up like that. And of course, Poland, again, in the most extraordinary way, has absorbed at least a million and a half and maybe more refugees from, from the Ukrainian war. And other European countries as well have taken in large numbers of refugees. And I just don't think anybody saw that coming. And in a way, as others have discussed, and I'll just mention it briefly here, that Putin has taken a very bad situation for him and made it considerably worse. That this people have called this the rebirth of NATO. I mean, NATO is back, that all the NATO member states, or almost all of them, are increasing their defense spending. The Germans are going for the 2% of uh, budget on defense, something that nobody would have foreseen four, five, six months ago. So, you know, the Germans are buying the F-35, a number of other, uh, the most advanced U.S. Uh, produced fighter. I just, every time you look at this, and I look at it, I kind of go, wow. So Putin, again, has seriously, seriously miscalculated. And, oh, well, that's a good thing in, in that sense, that we now have a much stronger alliance moving forward. And um, I think that's, that's good for us. I think it's good for Europe. And I think it's good for democracy. You know, Russia really is or can be an opaque country at times. It's very, it's very hard to tell exactly what's happening and the sanctions have been, I think, more than anyone thought that we'd ever see. In fact, they are unprecedented in terms of their scale and scope. Mm-hmm. However, trying to get an idea of whether they're actually having an effect is another thing. Have you um, gotten any indication that, that they're beginning to bite? I think they are, but I, I also think it's important to understand that some of these have a fairly long lead time before they'll really, really begin to have an effect that might begin to sway Russian public opinion. So far, Russian public opinion, by any indication that we can find, indicates that Putin remains very popular. In fact, one recent poll suggests that his popularity rating has actually gone up. But that's, of course, because nobody or very few people in Russia understand what's actually happening because of their, you know, very tight control of domestic media. So obviously we we have a difficult time assessing the extent to which uh, the sanctions have begun to to really take hold. Uh, There are indications that they have on the ground with things like availability of foreign goods and and some indication that there might be the beginnings of some uh, tightening food supplies. But it, it will take a while for those to fully implement. And I think they're very valuable. And I am absolutely supportive of the fact that we're pushing those sanctions. But I don't think we should expect miracles anytime soon. The Russians are a people who are inured to hardship, at least many of them, and the older generations are. The real question is, what are the young people thinking? And we don't have much insight into that. Right now, uh, typically younger people, let's say people under 39, certainly people under 29 are going to be better informed by social media and other ways of acquiring information that older persons who get their news from TV, uh, they simply can't follow. And of course, the other thing is, and, and I'll mention this very briefly, is we already see 
a huge exodus of young people, talented people, technologically savvy people in Russia getting out. They understand that there's worse coming and they don't want to be part of it. So this brain drain, if you will, of talent out of Russia long term is going to be a very serious blow to not only the economy, but just to the society in general. One of the strengths of the United States has been that we've always attracted that kind of talent from countries all over the world. So you you want to be a place that's attracting it and not losing talent like that. Dr. Clem, in, in many ways, this seems to be settling into a, a war of attrition, whether it's on the battlefield or whether it's on the home front. Russia, of course, is used to uh, wars of attrition and has uh, proven itself throughout history capable of absorbing a lot. At the same time, eh, this seems like it's really starting to put pressure on them to find a way out of the situation. And we've seen some diplomatic overtures. Is there anything that you've seen in those discussions so far that, that you see pointing towards a way out? You know, I'd like to think so. But realistically, at least up to this point, both parties, that is the Ukrainian side and the Russian side, are miles apart. According, have they made progress from these talks and at least trying to narrow the discussion to things that are realizable or doable or mutually agreeable, but they're still very, very far apart. And and again, I, I think that part of this is a Russian diplomatic game, or uh, I think that there's a lot of demands that are being made by the Russian side that are just totally and utterly infeasible from the Ukrainian side. The most important of those demands being that the Russians want Ukraine to relinquish certain territories, mainly in the east and along the, the, the northern Black Sea coast. What country that you can think of would willingly just say, oh, if you want those places, go ahead and take them. What would we do in the United States if we were forced to cede territory? You know, no country wants to give up territory. That's never, ever been true historically. And I I just don't see, because of that, it's very difficult for me to see what the end game is here or what the where the off-ramp is for both parties. There, people have proposed that maybe the thing to do would be to take the Russian-occupied territories and reconstitute them as some kind of a quasi- Republic, like the two breakaway sorts of uh, semi-independent entities that already existed that the Russians set up in eastern Ukraine, uh, maybe have referendums there to see what the population, how could those possibly be fair referenda? I just, I don't see anything right now that makes me in any way confident that there is a diplomatic solution to this. I think there's going to have to be a military solution. That is, the Russians are going to continue to be severely mauled. I think the diplomacy part is a sideshow. And maybe that's because I'm more inclined uh, to look at the military side. But for the time being, uh, I don't see any daylight there. 
Meanwhile, military operations continue, and it seems that the Ukrainians have learned the lesson or, or have embraced the lesson that you don't quit putting pressure on your enemy, even as you're uh, talking. So it's been fascinating to watch uh, the, the situation evolve on that front. But another part of this, uh, you know, we've talked the negative side of the sanctions and the combat, but the positive side, uh, I'd love to see more, and I'm, I'm eagerly searching for more, on how we're rebuilding Ukraine or how we're reinvigorating Ukraine because Gosh, the, the devastation that's been wrought in the places that have come under significant Russian attack is, has been incredible. And so there's going to be a, a big job for the West to step up to, to to help Ukraine find its way back, isn't it? It is. And that's a very good point. And I'm glad you raised it, that I've been working on a project with my colleague Eric Heron at West Virginia University on exactly that point. That is, thought should be given now. I'm beginning right now, serious thought should be giving on how the Europeans and the U.S. and Canada and other countries who are helping out in this effort, that how is that rebuilding going to take place? As you mentioned, it's going to require huge sums, 200, 300, 400, 500 billion, or it's easy to foresee. I think it's going to be very challenging because some of the places that are most badly damaged so far in the conflict, especially the area around Kharkiv and that very close to the Russian border, which was a major industrial center of Ukraine, how is that going to be rebuilt? Should it be rebuilt is a very difficult question to tackle. And I understand that that is extremely sensitive. But the Ukrainian economy prior to the outbreak of this war had actually begun realigning itself more towards the central and western regions of Ukraine for economic reasons. It's closer to Europe. There's more tech-related kinds of industries in the western part of the country. And the areas particularly that the Russians occupy in the Donbass region are essentially a, a rust belt. So in, in a sense, this is the time to start thinking about where, not just what money and how much money, but where that money is going to be invested. And of course, the Ukrainians have to guide that process. I mean, it would be extremely inappropriate or rude for a bunch of Americans or Europeans to say, no, no, you have to put that factory over here. We'll let them decide that. I mean, they'll be guided by these fundamental economic geography uh, considerations. And one last point, the Russians have to help pay for it. And how is that going to happen? There's well over $300 billion of Russian money frozen right now that needs to be unfrozen and moved into the Ukraine restoration project. So, I mean, there's a lot going on there. And it, and it, it, it seems to be putting the cart before the horse but this is the time to start thinking about that question that you raised. There's, yeah, they, they are going to have to build back, obviously, but it's important how they do it and where they do it, taking advantage of all the latest technologies and energy conservation, all of those sorts of things should come into play here. As we wrap up, Dr. Clem, let's put this in a, a larger historical context and maybe peek into the future at the grand strategy level. Um, I've made the point that this is another event that 
really uh, draws a line. And you know, historians, we love to, to divide things into periods and talk about their characteristics. I, I think we're at the beginning of a new period that uh, we can talk about what those features are. But broadly, what do you think going forward? As And let's start with the West. What should we be thinking now as we go forward in this new day, this new period that we're trying to navigate? Uh, and what are the, the big strategic considerations for us? I think at the, at the macro level, I think that this is, and I agree completely with you, that I do believe this is a watershed. And, and people who think about this on kind of the grand strategic level all seem to be in agreement that it is. So what is the watershed? What's on this side and what's on that side? And I think that it's fair to say that this is really now a competition between the, uh, I'm going to use the term the way that the political scientists use it, a liberal democratic West and other parts of the world that have become the opposite of that, have become autocratic dictatorships like Russia, for example, to a large extent like China, where I don't want to overcharacterize this as a good versus evil, but in some ways, at least from my personal perspective, it is kind of good versus evil that, I mean, I, I would like to see the, the Western side, the European side, and not just, uh, you know, West, I mean, a lot of uh, democratic societies all around the world that participate on this side, on the liberal side of the, the divide, they have to confront now the fact that uh, at least for the foreseeable future, Russia's not going to change. If anything, it's going to become more autocratic. Again, going back to what we talked about earlier, at least certainly on the military side, on the alliance side, uh, and then not just the military part, but the European Union and a number of these other entities are having to step up now and kind of pull their weight. And they are, as we discussed before. I mean, who can't be impressed by the, the way in which the, the liberal democratic order, it's not perfect. There are obviously a couple of places where even within NATO, where there are some concerns, uh, particularly Hungary, for example, with an increasingly more autocratic leader there. So I don't want to over glamorize that, but it really has, I think, become that. And I think it will become more so going forward. Dr. Clem, it's been a pleasure to have you on Speaking Globally again. Thank you for your uh, very keen insights and your broad perspective on this. And we, we look forward to checking in with you again as the situation continues to uh, evolve. Well, this is an evolving situation, General Gavan. As you've noted, there's going to be a lot more to talk about going forward. And I look forward to sharing thoughts with you and, uh, and your audience. My guest today has been Dr. Ralph Klim, an emeritus professor and senior fellow at the Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs at Florida International University. Our podcast is recorded in the studios of Troy Public Radio on the Troy University campus and is produced and edited by Kyle Gassett. I'm Walter Gavan, and I look forward to talking with you again soon on Speaking Globally.